Take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I trust that you enjoyed our worship time this morning as we sang songs to the Lord. Come people of the risen King, that's who we are. Church of Christ, rejoice. To God be the glory, great things He has done. And isn't it great to proclaim the wonder of who our God is? That in and of itself makes us want to run into his arms. That's where we discover the riches of his love. There we can experience everything that we need. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Liam. Thank you, Nolan, for all that you did to to help us this morning as we shared together. Over the last number of weeks, we have been looking at powerful words, life-changing words, words that have helped us understand what God wants to accomplish in our lives. We looked at Jesus' words. They're found in Matthew chapter 28, where he said, I am with you always. We understand that he will never leave us nor forsake us, and that we can depend upon him to meet all of our needs. The next Sunday, Palm Sunday, we looked at words from the crowd. Again, Matthew's gospel in chapter 21 and 27, in Matthew chapter 21, we heard the crowds proclaim, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then in Matthew 27, just a few days later, they cried out, crucify him. Last week, Easter Sunday morning, we looked at the words of an angel. And there, as they went to that empty tomb, it was the angel who said, Why seek you the living among the dead? He's not here. And here were our words. He is risen, as he said. Over the next three weeks, we are going to look at life-changing words, powerful words that give us hope and help us cope. They're found here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning with verse 16 and then verse 17 and verse 18. They identify positive things in our lives that we need to focus on, focus on during times of conflict and, and crisis. The words, verse 16, rejoice. Mark that in your Bibles, will you please? Rejoice. Verse 17, pray. How important it is that we pray as we trust God to meet our needs. And in verse 18, the first two words in our English translation, give thanks. These are all present imperatives designed to help us focus on what we know God is doing in our lives and what we want God to do in our lives. Perhaps you think they're just ordinary things. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. But the apostle adds some adverbs, some qualifiers to these words that we must recognize if we're going to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. Again, verse 16, rejoice always. Verse 17, pray 
without ceasing. And in verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Now that kind of changed the focus, doesn't it? Because it's easy to rejoice, but to always rejoice? That may be a, another matter. Now I want to give you a little background to what Paul is writing here in 1 Thessalonians. And in order to do that, I need to take you to Paul's second missionary journey. During that time, he went to Galatia, Asia, and now Macedonia. It was in Macedonia that he went after he had received that vision, come over and help us. And it's in Macedonia where he discovers the city of Thessalonica and their ministers. So turn back with me, please, to Acts chapter 17. And while you're turning there, I want to give you just a glimpse of what's taking place in Paul's life. We'll not take time to look at it, but if you were to look into chapter 16, you would find his stop in Philippi. That's the first location that he arrived at in Macedonia. There he met Lydia, who was converted when she heard the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. He was exposed to a slave girl, a slave girl that followed him around and that declared that he and Silas were servants of the Most High God. The text tells us that she did this for many days, and finally, in verse 17, we read, And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to her, this is verse 18, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, all of a sudden, things blew up. Because this slave girl was a fortune teller who had made her masters a lot of money. The masters surrounded Paul and Silas and drugged them into the marketplace and presented them to the magistrates. The crowd attacked them. They stripped them. They beat them. They were thrown in prison. And there we have the wonderful account of the Philippian jailer who was gloriously saved when the doors were thrown open and Paul and Silas shared with him his need of salvation and he asked, what can I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved. The magistrates discovered that Paul was a Roman citizen and therefore they feared anything that they wanted to do to him. And so what they did is they took him out, allowed him to visit with Lydia, and encouraged him to leave. And Paul and Silas did just that. We now find him going to Thessalonica. And it is in Thessalonica that Paul has a great ministry to the believers who are there. 
Are you in Acts 17? Let me read for you the first 10 verses, please. Now, when they had passed through Amphilus and Apollyon, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah. Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded. And they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. But when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, whose name is Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then verse 10, And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. It's important for us to understand something about Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia. It was a metropolitan area of some 200,000 people. There were Greeks, there were Jews, there were Romans, there were Asians who all made up the demographic of this great city. Now, economically, Thessalonica was a city of commerce. It was located right on a wonderful bay, and it was a chief route to reach the rest of the world. It was the key to Macedonia. Morally, Thessalonica was a city of idolatry. And it was eclectic as these groups of individuals brought in their own standards of of living. Socially, it was a very wealthy city. But as wealthy as it was, it was also a poor city. There was no middle class in Thessalonica. The wealthy, the majority of them, did very, very well. The rest subsisted from day to day in manual labor and daily toil. Religiously, it was a diverse people. And this religion in many ways determined the authority of the city. Religion had a strong hold on the people. And the more you had in your group, the stronger you were and the more authority you had. We read in the text that there was a synagogue, a very important synagogue, an influential synagogue. And it was in this synagogue that there was proselytizing going on because there were, there were Greeks who were part 
of the synagogue. And as a result of the ministry that Paul and Silas had, some Jews accepted the Messiah. Some of the Greeks also trusted Christ. And the scripture says that not even a few women, a few of the leading women, got saved. Now, if you move into verse 5 of Acts 17, you discover very quickly that this became an issue. The English Standard Version says the Jews were jealous. King James says that they were moved with envy. And why was that? Because at the end of verse 6, the text says, these men have turned the world upside down. Now, you may think that's a good thing, and it's certainly a good thing. But I like the way that the New International Version translates this verse, where it says, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. The rest of the story is that the authorities sought to capture Paul and, and Silas. And so they went to Jason's house and thought he was there and he wasn't there. And they pulled Jason out and they accused Paul and Silas of having another king, acting against the decrees of Caesar and saying that that other king was King Jesus. Verse 10, the brothers, those that received Christ as personal Savior, those who had trusted Christ, the body of Christ, men and women, sent Paul away, and they did it by night. And Paul and Silas went to Berea, which is about 40 miles inland from Thessalonica. We now come to the writing of 1 Thessalonians, and turn back there, please, in your copy of the Scriptures. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Hebert says in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, Ever since Paul had been torn away from his Thessalonica converts, his pastoral heart had been deeply concerned about them. He was well aware that he had left them with a heritage of suffering. He was indeed sure that they too were struggling in their Christian life. He had warned them that suffering was going to be part of their lives, and it was part of what awaited them as they became Christians, but that they would endure when subjected to this fiery trial. His own experience was that of recognition that for the gospel, there was indeed a price to be paid. And now he writes back to the believers at Thessalonica to encourage them, to help them, and to challenge them. Our text 
verse 16, tells us what the focus was as he encouraged them. He encouraged them to rejoice always. And no matter what was going on in their lives, they needed to be ready to understand that this was something God wanted to accomplish for his honor and for his glory. But how could they do that? How could they rejoice always? This morning I want to give you four keys that are necessary in our lives if we are going to practice this focus of of Paul. These keys are taken from the lives of the believers at Thessalonica. And so turn back to chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, will you please? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The first key is this, the gospel's work in our lives. Verse 5 of chapter 1 says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. As we think about the gospel's work in our lives, it's good for us to define the gospel. 1 Corinthians, Paul defines the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. The gospel, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Last night I received an interesting phone call. Earlier in the week, one of our folks had connected with me and asked if I would be willing to talk with one of their friends. I said, sure, and I gave them permission to give that individual my phone number. Last night, they called me. And there were just a number of questions that they had, not the least of which is, will we live eternally? And if we will live eternally, where will we spend eternity? Now, this person did have a concept of heaven and of hell. And they were concerned whether or not if they ended up in hell, if they could ever get into heaven. I began with the gospel in their lives. Shared with them some verses that identify what is necessary if we're going to be saved, and have the promise of everlasting life. Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Peter said in Acts chapter 4, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so as we define the gospel, we recognize that it is in Christ alone that we are saved. Faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone. But not only do we define the gospel, we also declare the gospel. You must be born again. 
Acts chapter 17 said that Paul spent three Sabbaths there declaring Jesus Christ. Now, it was Paul's custom to go into the synagogues because it was there that those who attended the synagogues had Old Testament background. And Paul would do a couple of things. Number one, he would reason with them that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah. Two, he would share with them that this Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And three, he would then identify as Jesus, who was the Lamb of God to come and take away the sin of the world, was indeed the sacrificial Lamb of Christ. Paul declared the gospel. But we also need to demonstrate the gospel. You see, if the gospel is only good for heaven, then we've missed its impact on our lives. We've missed the gospel's work in our lives. We've missed the fact that God wants to challenge us and change us and conform to the the character of Jesus Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit to teach us and guide us, comfort us and seal us. James says, You show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by the works. Here the believers at Thessalonica received the gospel, not only in word, but in power for their lives and in the Holy Spirit. And the text says, with full conviction. You see, it either works or it doesn't. It either identifies the wonder of God in our lives or not. And so as we think about rejoicing always, we need to understand that it starts with the work of the gospel. And because the gospel is real in my life, no matter what God brings my way, I can be thankful that he does all things for my good and for his glory. There's a second truth that I want to identify that was evidence in the lives of the believers in Thessalonica, and that's this. God knows and understands all about our troubles. In verse 6, we read this. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, we won't take time to turn to chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, but there Paul reminds the believers that when he was with them, he kept telling them that they would suffer affliction. And he reminds them that that has come to pass just as he said it would. God never promises that we will not suffer. God never tells us that we will not face trials or temptations. God never wants us to think that our life is not going to be full of tribulation. In fact, Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation, but be of good joy, I have overcome the world. 
what God does promise is that he will be faithful. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. If you look at that word temptation in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it has the idea of a negative life experience, of a potential negative impact on our lives. There's no negative life experience. There's nothing that has a potential negative impact on our lives that God is not aware of. God is and we can rejoice always because God knows and understands our afflictions. There's a third benefit to rejoicing always, and that is it provides us an opportunity to have a genuine testimony before others. Verse 7 says, so that you became examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Verse 8, for not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Rejoice always. Why? Because that is a genuine testimony of God's work in our lives. And we show his wonder to those who are around us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see, as we rejoice always, we then show that what God has done in our lives is alive and well and real. And we can know that our God is working. Lastly, we can rejoice always because one day we're going home and we have the confidence that Jesus is coming again. In verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul encourages his believers to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Behold, I show you a mystery, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We shall not all sleep, we'll not all die, but we're all going to be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. And then he says, because of those things, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We are living in uncertain, unprecedented times in our country. 
government instruction, some would say intrusion, has become part of our lives. We can buy groceries, but we can't buy a garden hose. We can and we can't assemble together. And many are developing a dependence upon governmental institutions, stimulus checks, payroll protection, testing that's going to keep us from getting the coronavirus. We talk about, may even pray about, getting back to normal. I'm praying that Governor Whitmer's initial date of April 30th holds true. And when I pray that, I I have to pray, Lord, help my unbelief. Give me the seed of a great mustard seed that we might be able to move this mountain. But the truth is, I'm not sure I ever want to get back to normal. I want my life to be challenged, changed, conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. You see, I have learned new ways to trust the faithfulness of God. I have listened closer to the voice of His Spirit. Oh, I long for the fellowship of God's people. I've looked for ways to minister to folks and meet their needs. And frankly, I've lost a lot of my frail Self-centered self-dependence because I've been unable to accomplish what I want to accomplish. You see, I'm not sure I ever want to go back to normal. But I do want to be ready for what God has for me next. I want to be ready for what God has for us next. And I'm excited about that. I so desire to see the gospel worked out in my life. I want to concentrate on the wonder of God, a God who knows and understands and recognizes everything that I'm going through. I want a consistent witness to those who are around me as I live out the wonder of God. And I want a conscious a conscious waiting for the soon return of Jesus Christ. Because when that happens, I'm going home. We're going home. And how do I do that? I rejoice always. And I recognize that where God has me right now, I am there for a reason so that he can fulfill his purpose to challenge me, to change me, and to conform me to the character of his son, Jesus Christ. I hope that's true in your life.